Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. With us today is John Burke, president of Trek Bites. Trek is a company John's father started in 1976, and John took over as leader in 1998. Today, the company has 3,000 employees and does over $1.2 billion in sales, with more than half of that from outside the U.S. Besides Trek, other brands include Bontrager and Electra. They manufacture both at their headquarters in Waterloo, Wisconsin, as well as in Germany, and contract in the Far East. It's a family-owned business, but also has an employee stock ownership plan. John has written two books and has shared some views you don't always hear from CEOs, such as his concern for the distribution of income and wealth in the U.S. and what to do about it. And John has just published a third book, which is entitled Presidential Playbook 2020, 16 Nonpartisan Solutions to Save America. And we'll get to talk about that a little bit today. So, John, thank you for being with us. You were scheduled to come to campus in April for the speaker series, but COVID-19 did that in. So we're appreciative of you joining us today in this new format. Thank you very much for having me, Joe. So since it's the pandemic that took you out of coming to campus, let's just kind of start with that. We're six months in right now, and I'm sure that your company has seen some changes that you've had to adjust to in terms of supply factors and demand factors. Could you maybe walk us through some of those? What are the most interesting things that you've had to confront in these six months of the pandemic? Yeah, wild ride is uh, the headline. I go with Trex Business, super strong, 18, super strong, 19, we start 20 out, great January, great February, COVID-19, China disrupts the supply chain. We contract manufacture some product in China. We also source some other parts. So we saw it as a supply chain issue, a bump in the road. We get to March 10th and all of a sudden COVID-19 is appearing in Italy. Italy is shutting down. The United States is shutting down air travel. And (laughs) we're just looking at a major crisis for the company. We looked at Europe as a huge market for Trek. And over the next week, we took a look at the majority of Europe shutting down. Then we were seeing places in the U.S. shut down. And we were really bracing ourselves for a really tough 2020 and we did a really good job of that and really put a, the company in a good position. We had six points in our strategy on how to get through COVID-19. And then all of a sudden, a really weird thing happened. And it happened on like April 12th. And just visualize a big green button. And it says global bike boom. And on April 12th, somebody hit it. And all of a sudden, you know, we went from seeing uh, sales decline in the second half of March in the first two weeks of April to bikes just flying out the door. And we had a monster April, May, June, July. The only job I've had since leaving college has been at Trek in 
I haven't seen anything like it in 36 years. So one question about that increase in demand, just curious, like domestically, has the type of customer changed at all? Are you getting into customer groups that previously you didn't have much traction with or they just weren't on your radar? You know, it's really interesting because one of the things I like to do is I like to ask, visit customers. And I was out in the field about a little over 15 years ago and I, I said, I want to know the biggest challenge you have in your business. Doesn't matter, track, not track. And bicycle retailers said the biggest problem we have is our point of sale system. And these are usually small shops, so they can't afford a great system, but then they never get the training and they don't have the service and the support. So one of the smart things we did is we developed our own point of sale system, which we provide to our retailers. So to bring the story around, we have all this data, especially in the U.S. market, almost 80% of our retailers are on our system, so we can see exactly what's happening. And so one of the things that we saw happening was the bike boom started out mostly with bikes below $800. But then after about two weeks, when you get towards the end of April, it was e-bikes, it was carbon road bikes, it was high-end full suspension mountain bikes. It's been a really broad-based boom. It hasn't just been a specific category. The one thing that is interesting is new people coming into the market, which you know we haven't seen in years. Okay, because that's totally consistent with my observations here in Seattle. There's just a whole lot of people biking that weren't doing it before. So maybe explain to us what your distribution strategy is. You mentioned the bike shops, so maybe walk us through that a little bit. So my father had a saying whenever he talked to salespeople, he said, well, we need our competent and committed retailers. And one of the things that Trek has in our flywheel is a competent, committed retailer in every market. And one of the things we do a really good job of is dissecting markets around the world and figuring out how Trek does in each individual market. And we will really want to make sure that we have a competent, committed retailer in that market. And that's the bulk of our business. Now, a new wrinkle in that is about four years ago, we had a dealer in Washington, D.C. who was a 63-year-old guy who decided he wanted to move to Hawaii and he wanted to sell his business. Well, nobody really wanted to buy his business and he was a pretty good Trek dealer and we didn't want to lose the business. So we said, you know, we'll buy it. And so we got into the retail business. And in the last four years, we've been buying up Trek retailers, people who want to get out of the business. So we're good exit strategy for existing retailers. And we've also been opening up our own retailers. So if you take a look at a place like Redmond, there's a Trek store in Redmond. Well, we didn't do very well in Redmond for 25 years. Now we do great in Redmond. So we opened our own stores in markets where we're underrepresented. And that's our overall strategy when we go to market. Great. So earlier you mentioned electric bikes. Where do you think we're headed with that? They seem to be growing in popularity here in Seattle. What do you see there? I see we're in the second inning of the game with electric bikes. I think electric bikes are going to be huge. And I think to understand that, you know, if if you think COVID-19 is a huge shock to the system, I tell people, wait for climate change. The effects of climate change are going to be extraordinary. And one thing about the bike I've always said is it's a simple solution. It's not a complete solution, but if you take a look at climate change, if you take a look at congestion, 
And if you take a look at the health crisis in America and in other countries around the world, we need to be a more active society. We need to be a more mobile society outside of cars. And a lot of things point towards the bike. So I think, you know, the bike has a great future. When you take a look at e-bikes, you know, e-bikes really, the two biggest markets have always been Holland and Germany. And they've been selling e-bikes for the last 15 years. And last year, the e-bike business in Holland and Germany grew by like 35%. That's after 15 years. The U.S. has seriously been selling e-bikes for maybe three. And we're way early in the game. And I always compare it to an iPhone. If you go back to the first time you saw an iPhone and somebody goes, look, you can take a picture and you can just send it to a friend by touching the screen. People go, wow, that's amazing. And if you're at a bike shop, and somebody goes out and they test ride an e-bike for the first time, if 100 people test ride an e-bike for the first time, they all come back with the same thing, a huge smile. It's one of the few products that has this unbelievable effect on people. And you know, I think that we're super early in the e-bike game. It does so much for so many people. It allows commuters to get to work faster, it allows people to go road bike riding, mountain bike riding. They can go further. They can see more things. They can go up hills. They can ride with their spouse. It's like being a kid again. And it does so many things. And that business, I think, will continue to grow significantly for years to come. Well, here in Seattle, it's definitely getting up the hills that really sells e-bikes, I think. Yeah. So whether it's e-bikes or, you know, road bikes, it just seems like there's a ton of innovation going on with bikes, period. Yeah. So how do you foster innovation in your company and make sure like you're on the leading edge? What are some of the things that you think you do at Trek that allows you to stay ahead of everybody else? Hire really good people. You know, the, the number one thing is to hire really good people and give them the tools to get the job done. I think one of the things is understanding the importance of product. Go by the Apple school that product is everything. If you have a great product, it's so much easier to market a great product than an average product. It's so much easier to sell a great product than an average product. It's easier to collect the cash. You got to have amazing product. And, you know, we see that when we have something that's just off the charts good, you know, you'll see an increase of two, three, four X in sales if you've really done well. So we commit the resources and we have an amazing team of people and we put a lot of time and effort into training to make sure that that group of people, they have what they need to win. Mm -hmm. Great. So, you know, you have several brands, as I mentioned earlier. How do you kind of, you know, manage the brands across the brands? And is there situations where you have potentially the same customer for more than one brand? How do you work that out? Well, you're talking to an expert. Good. <laughs> and the reason I say that is at one point in time, we used to sell a whole wagon full of brands. We had the Trek brand, we had the Gary Fisher brand, we had the Klein brand, we had the Bontrager brand. In Europe, we had the Diamant brand, the Aero brand. I mean, it just went on. And we kind of came to the conclusion that it wasn't worth having all the brands with the effect that it had on our focus. And so we really streamlined our brands and we cut it way back. 
And we really got it down to that Trek is really the driver of the brands. And then electric came up for sale and we had tried as hard as we could not to buy anything. And, you know, we took a look at Nike and Nike had Converse and we thought that was applicable to buying Electra, that it was a, it wasn't a performance brand. It was a fashion brand. And we really thought there's so many people trying to win at the performance game. Trek's trying to win, Specialized, Cannondale, you know, it did, the list goes on and on. Everybody's chasing that performance buyer. And then you get to, you know, you get to the casual rider. And we really thought that there was a need for Electra. And it's been incredibly successful. So whatever we do, we want to do well. And I think we've done really well with Electra. Great. Well, I'm going to switch gears, so to speak here. Sorry for that <laughs> terrible pun. Trek's a family business, right? And so... Yep. One question I have is, did you always know you would become part of the family business? And how did you decide to go there? And did you do other professional experience before you joined Trek? I worked at Trek. I worked at Trek the summer of my junior year. The summer of my sophomore year, I worked third shift in a plastics factory. And I came home from the first day at about seven in the morning and my father was up pouring his cup of coffee on the way to work. He said, how was your first day at the plastics factory? And I said, dad, that was horrible. I'm not going back. And he looked at me and I can still remember. I remember everything. I can tell you exactly where he was in the kitchen. And he looked at me and he said, you will be going back to the plastics factory tonight and you will be going back every night this summer and you will enjoy it. And he walked out of the kitchen and that was that. But the next summer I worked at track and I worked in the warehouse. I worked picking and packing orders and I really loved it. And then I, I was so motivated that after I got done picking and packing, I wouldn't go home. I'd get on the phone and I'd, I'd try and sell stuff. And it was at that time, it wasn't, you know, until junior summer of my junior year that I figured out, you know, I really would like to get a job at track. And so after I graduated from college, next day I came home, got my wisdom teeth pulled, and I was working at Trek. It's the only job I've had. Okay, great. So you mentioned the importance of having good employees, right? How do you retain and compensate and attract non-family members into the business? You know, if, if, if there had to be one lesson for anybody in business school, it's, it's all about the team. Done. If you have a great team, you don't have to motivate a great team. Great people do incredible work. And so I, I think what we do to motivate people is we call it the awesome bus, is that the bus is where people come to work. And so, you know, we have a great cafe and we got a great gym and we have the best 10 miles of mountain bike trails right across the street that we've built. And we have a fun time. It's a fun atmosphere. And people take a ton of pride in the work that they do. I think some of the special things we do is we've taken our business and divided it up into 400 pieces so that we try and create 400 owners. There's not one owner of Trek, there's 400. So we give people ownership, we give teams that feeling of responsibility and ownership. And then I think 
You know, one of the great things about Trek, and this came from my dad, is there's an ESOP. The ESOP owns 25% of Trek. And there's profit sharing. And, you know, we have employees who have huge ba- huge balances. And, you know, a good friend of mine was, you know, worked at Trek for 34 years. He ran our Canadian business. He retired two years ago. And, you know, he walked out the door with, you know, a lot of money. And that just allows he and his family to do some amazing things. He shared in the profits of what he created. And I think that's a really good thing at Trek. Yeah, I'm just curious, the ESOP and then the family ownership, is it easy to keep, you know, both groups aligned? Or do you think there's special challenges when a family business goes down the ESOP route? We were really lucky to have a benevolent dictator. And that was my father. And maybe that's a little too strong. But now that's me. And because I own, you know, a good share of the company, and I'm on the ESOP, and there's a great responsibility to the company, the legacy, and the employees. There's complete alignment. And the alignment has always been what's in the best long-term interest of the company. That Not what's in the best interest of the family, not what's in the best interest of a certain group of employees, what's in the best long-term interest of Trek. And if Trek's doing well, then everybody's doing well. As soon as you start to please different people, I think that turns into a mess. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. You know, originally you would have been here on campus in April and talking to a lot of students. Yeah. So as the dean, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a question, mm-hmm. namely, what advice would you give to recent graduates, especially in this pandemic period? And what do you know now that you wish you knew when you graduated and went out to the workforce? Man, what a great question. I'll tell you, I think... The biggest thing that I have learned is there's a great video by, I went to my son's college graduation at Marquette and David McCullough, the American historian and author was the speaker. And he looked out over the graduates and the the title of his speech was the importance of reading. Like, really? (laughs) And his point was this, his readers are leaders. You are what you read. And if I had one piece of advice for graduates, it would be read. A lot of people think their education is over once they graduate from college. And it's not. If you take a look at the smartest people, if you take a look at Bill Gates, if you take a look at Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett reads 500 pages a day. There's never been a better time to learn. And I just read this incredible book, The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And so you can read The Infinite Game, then you can get on YouTube and you can watch Simon Sinek give a lecture. There's so much incredible information that I think the winners are the learn-it-alls. And the second piece of advice I'd have is, you know, we have this leadership meeting at Trek once a month for all of our leaders, and we have certain leaders give presentations. And I was having a conversation with a leader a few months ago, and we were talking about one employee who his team wasn't doing a very good job. 
And I said, I go, Steve, what do you think Tommy's problem is? And he says, uh, he just can't make friends. The guy I'm talking to is a very successful leader at Trek. I said, Steve, why do you think that is? And he went through and he told me, he goes, John, he goes, everything I've been able to accomplish at Trek, it's because I have relationships. I have friends. And so he said, he looked at me and he goes, the key to success is just make some blanking friends. And I go, wow, that's really great. So I had him at our next leadership meeting give a presentation on making friends. And so that would be my second piece of advice is it's not how smart you are. It is really how good you are at creating relationships. And the key to creating relationships is really doing things for people. It's putting yourself second. Having trust that if you do things for other people, it will come back to you tenfold. And I think too many people are wrapped up in what do I get? And I think another piece of advice for your graduates is take a longer term view. Don't, what do I get now? If you work hard, if you do a great job, great things will happen to you. Great, that's great advice, John, thank you. So you earlier described yourself as a benevolent dictator. <laughs> Maybe you could talk a little bit more about your leadership style and you know what you've relied upon to be a successful leader. I mean, you've been doing it for more than 20 years, so and the company has had tremendous growth and is one of the strongest brands. Even people that you know don't ride bikes have heard about Trek. So how about your leadership philosophy and what you think the keys to success are? You know, I'll tell you that my favorite tools are, I have two very large whiteboards in my office. I have two very large whiteboards and I have a lot of markers with different colors and I have erasers. And my management style is let's deal with the brutal facts. I wanna know the situation on the field. I wanna know what the problem is. I wanna get the smartest people in the room to go through the problem. And I wanna get everything up on the board. And once you get all the issues up on the board and then you draw a line and then you start brainstorming and you get everybody's ideas on what are the solutions, how do we win? It becomes so apparent. And I really think that just being a really good listener and always exploring all the options. When I'm in the design area, one of my rules for designers when they show options to me is I, we call it off campus. They put together three options. There always needs to be something that's off campus, something just totally different. And I think that's true not only in design, but also when you're taking a look at any issue. And one of the things that we talk about at Trek is bigger than the barn for leaders is Tim Cook gave an interview and somebody asked Tim Cook, they said, what do you think the real lesson of Steve Jobs' life was? And it took him about a quarter of a second to answer it. And he said, Steve believed that people limited their lives by living in a small box and that it was his job to really expand their horizons and show them how capable they were. And I think as a leader, it's my job to really challenge people to broaden their horizons and really think big, think outside the box. And I think one of these aspects of the way I like to lead is I like to listen, get all the ideas. I also like to challenge people. 
challenge people to think outside the box. Where can we go that nobody else is? How can we be totally different? I really want to take a look at that. So I would say, I would say those are two things. Great. Good. In your 20 plus years at Trek, what are you most proud of that you've accomplished as the president? I would say the culture. The culture is amazing. And anybody who visits Trek just goes, this is an incredible place. And I'm so proud of the culture that we have. The people make up the culture. I'm just to get goosebumps talking about it. We just have an incredible amount of talent and people who absolutely love track. And that's what I'm most proud of. What do you think the key elements of the culture is? You mentioned fun earlier, but what else? You know, <laughs> one of the things that we did is, this was uh, Christmas like two years ago. And it was the 23rd and that was the last working day. And there were a bunch of gifts stacked up on my desk. And I worked late that night. And it was like 7.30 and I was still there. And there was a box with a bow around it. And I'm going to go, I'm going to open that. And it was from the marketing department. And I opened up the box and inside there was a poem for me, which, you know, that's appropriate because the marketing department did this. They're creative. And then I had always been talking about, we need to take the culture and the special sauce and we need to document this. And I opened it up and there was a book. And it was a book of Trek. It was our brand. It was stories about what makes Trek a really unique and special place. And so maybe after about 43 edits, we came out with that book about a year ago. And it's a red book, but it, it really talks about what makes Trek a special place. But, you know, it's, it's a bunch of different things. One is it's a really fun place to work. Two is one of the things we do, and, and it's, our mission statement is we build awesome products that we love. We provide incredible hospitality to our customers and we change the world by getting more people on bikes. And that's not just a mission statement that looks good on the wall. That's what we actually do. And people believe in that. They're there for something bigger than themselves. And we take it seriously and we work really hard. And you know, one of the things that's in there is we were redoing our owner's manual. This was like 10 years ago. And I hate our owner's manual. It's written by lawyers. Everybody's owner's manual is terrible. And I don't like terrible things. And I said, I want to write the owner's manual. And the lawyer said, well, you can't. And I said, well, I want to write the opening of the owner's manual. And they said, okay. And so my owner's manual went like this. It said, thank you for buying a Trek. Welcome to the Trek family. If you ever have a problem with your Trek, go see your Trek retailer. And if they can't solve your problem, call Trek, and Trek will solve your problem. And if Trek can't solve your problem, send me an email and I'll solve your problem. And I care about every single customer. So I can tell you when the bike season starts because then my emails pick up. But that's the kind of place that Trek is, is that we care. I don't care how big Trek is. We care about every single customer. And nothing makes me feel better than getting a note from a customer who has had incredible hospitality from Trek. Great, great. You know, looking across the situation for all business leaders today, not just business leaders in the biking sector, what do you think the biggest challenge right now is for a business leader? And how would you suggest they approach it? That's another really good question. I, I think 
the current biggest challenge is COVID-19. I mean, that's, that's the biggest challenge today. I would say that the biggest challenge that business leaders face today is the ineptitude of the United States government. I would say that we have so many smart people in this country, but as a democracy, we have been unable to take our individual competence and channel it into a competent government. If you take a look at our tax policy, that would be a prime example of how competent or incompetent our government really is. If you take a look at our educational policy for public schools, that's scary for a business leader. And you take a look at what are, what's happening in other countries around the world and you just shake your head. Well, that is a great segue into your new book. <laughs> How's that? You know, and I wasn't even trying to do that, but I just couldn't help myself. That's what I really think. I absolutely believe that. And you have to think that way to, to go ahead and pen the book that you did. So Presidential Playbook 2020. Now, at one yep. point, you were actually thinking of running for president yourself. You decided yep. not to do that, but you decided to publish. So yep. uh, talk about the book. Uh, give us an opening statement, and then we'll get into some questions about it. I wasn't real happy with, with the performance of our government four years ago or six years ago. And so coming up on 2012, I thought my contribution would be to write a book on the major problems in America and how to s solve them, simple solutions. So I called it 12 Simple Solutions to Save America. And then all of a sudden, when 2016 rolls around, Trump wins the presidency. And what I saw in the next couple of years, I'm like, this isn't getting any better. And I really said, if nobody runs for president in 2020 who's competent and who has a plan, I'll run. And so I spent two years writing a book as to what would be my plan if I ran. And one of the things that bothers me is that people run for the most important position in the world and they don't have a plan. And so what I thought my contribution in running would be was to really lay out, hello Americans, we really have serious challenges. They're also incredible opportunities, but here are serious challenges. The good news is there's solutions to all these things. There's sacrifice involved, but all these things can be tackled. I wrote that book. If I was going to run, I would have published the book and I would have said, I'm running for president. Here's my plan. No other candidate has ever had a detailed plan. I was hoping that's what would have set me apart. In the end, after talking to a bunch of political professionals who told me that I had absolutely no chance, I decided not going to run, but I'll put the book out there because I think Americans lack so many of the facts. We have these two warring tribes today, and for the most part, they have no idea what the facts are around the issues. And how can you, as a society, solve the problems when you can't agree on what the facts are. And so I, I put the book out, the 2020 Presidential Playbook. You can go to 2020presidentialplaybook.com. You can download the book for free because I just want people to read the book. Or you can buy the book on Amazon. Or for our guests here, if you send me an email, and you can put the email on your website, all you need to do is send me an email and I'll send you a copy. You sent me a copy and I started to work my way through it, but I only had 24 hours, but I did enjoy it. And one question I had when I was reading 
When you wrote it, you didn't know that the fall would boil down to Trump-Pence uh, versus Biden-Harris, right? Would, yeah. would anything been different about the book if you had known that was going to be the lineup for us in November? No. Okay. You know, John Kennedy ran for the presidency in 1960, and he said something that I thought was profound. He said, the new frontier is not a set of programs of things I'm going to do for you, but it's a set of challenges for the American people. What I'm curious about in the campaign is I think we have a bunch of political candidates walking around talking about what they're going to do for people, in fact, trying to buy votes, as opposed to letting people know what they need to do for their country. These are the sacrifices that you need to make. And we just don't have that kind of talk in this country, and we haven't for a long time. And if you want to build something great, anything that you build that is great requires hard work and it requires sacrifice. And we've gotten addicted to campaigns talking about tax cuts and talking about the size of people's hands and how to pronounce names. It is embarrassing. Embarrassing. So across those 16 initiatives that you laid out there, what would you identify as the top two or three priorities that we can't do all 16 at once? So what are the two or three really important ones we have to get after? Here's my feeling is, is that you can do all 16 at once, is that that's what we're lacking. And I compare it to Apple. When Steve Jobs came back to Apple in 97, he didn't just take care of two or three things. He, he, he got everything out on the table and he freaking dealt with it. I don't decide in my job, you know, we've got 16 massive problems. I think I'm only going to do two. Franklin Roosevelt, he didn't come into the office in the depression and go, you know what, I'm just going to focus on two things. I mean, how can you say, you know, I'm not going to tackle climate change. I'm going to focus on other things. The group of atomic scientists have been publishing the doomsday clock for 50 years. And right now they say the doomsday clock is 30 seconds to midnight, which is the darkest time we've faced, including the Cuban Missile Crisis. And if you don't think there could be a nuclear accident, you also probably didn't think that there could be a pandemic that would bring the United States to its knees. And yet as a country, we have, I don't know, somewhere around 4,000 nuclear missiles on active duty. Maybe it's 2,600. And we're going to spend $495 billion upgrading our nuclear fleet over the next 10 years. And we don't need to be doing that. How can you pass on that? And then you take a look at what's going on with our tax code. There are some people say it's 2,500 pages. There are other people say it's 74,000 pages. But you have very rich people who don't pay any taxes. It's disgusting. And our tax code allows it. And you could simplify the tax code so that everybody's paying their fair share and so that the government could actually do some good work. Or how do you have a $23 trillion deficit and not address it? So my belief is I think you need a Franklin Roosevelt, we're going to clean out the glove compartment here. Let's go. Like <laughs> you could get a bunch of this stuff done in 90 days. I guarantee it. Great. Thank you, John. So you described yourself as optimistic, right? Yep. And, you know, despite all these challenges we face, what makes you optimistic about the U.S. and the world right now? I mean, what technology has done and is capable of doing, the educational abilities are just unbelievable. What the Internet can do for you in terms of 
knowledge is amazing. What the internet can do for you in terms of entertainment is amazing. What the internet, what information should be able to do for society is amazing if we use it in the right way. I think that if we can put in place a competent government who looks out for all the people, I think for sure the best days are ahead of us. Yes, and that circles back to the advice you gave our students about read, right? We like that here at the university. Make friends is also important and work hard and good things will happen, right? So we appreciate that and we'll be sure to pass that on to our students. You know, I really appreciate you getting together this morning and chatting. You know, unfortunately, we didn't get to see you in April. Please let us know when you're going to next be in Seattle. We'd love to have you come to campus and host you here and speak directly to students because, as you said, this is a very creative, innovative society, and we will get the COVID thing figured out. It's just going to take a little bit more time than we had hoped when it first started. Yeah. Appreciate you joining us, John. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And if I can ever be of any help, please let me know. If you would like to receive a copy of John Burke's book, 16 Nonpartisan Solutions to Save America, you can email him directly at john underscore burke at trekbikes.com. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook, the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, Consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albers School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening.